0: As I was preparing for this uh, talk, you know, you never quite know how it's going to go or what you feel like the Lord's leading you or your own mind. But um, in light of this weekend's, weekend's readings on salt and light, I thought it was really fitting as two symbols for faith and, and of reason, you know. And uh, that's what we're called to be, and I hope this can be salt and light. One of the great pillars of faith and reason in our times, of course, is Pope Benedict. And I was amazed that when I got preparing for this, how much I went back to his writings, I mean, this is the Pope of reasonable faith and the Pope of faithful reason, so uh, in light of that, uh, I'm going to cover a lot of ground, so don't feel like you got to get it all, but hopefully you can get a little grain of salt here and there, and as the picture shows, uh, hold on to your your hats. So um, first we start with the predecessor of Pope Benedict, you know, John Paul II. He stated that one may define the human being as the one who seeks the truth. That's in the great encyclical, Fides et Ratio, faith and reason. And this great little clip here, a quote from St. Edith Stein said, anyone who seeks truth seeks God, whether or not he realizes it. I mean, that is a massive truth to ponder. You know, anybody, and I love anybody that's in the pursuit of truth. You know, even like a hot-headed atheist, if you're on the path, praise God, because you're you're looking for him, okay? So it's like we're in the pursuit of truth in whatever angle that comes. Of course, the question is, the question that Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? You know, and what did the Lord say? Everyone who is of the truth uh, hears my voice. So the question becomes: then, well, what is what is truth? Simply, it's what is. A statement is true when it conforms to reality. You know, unfortunately, today, right? We are people having. We, we're in a culture that wants to determine reality for themselves. Not something out there, but something inside here. My truth is not your truth. You know, Like Pope Benedict said, we're moving toward a dictatorship of relativism which does not recognize anything as for certain and which has as its highest goal, one owns ego and one's own desires. This is what we're up against, really a culture of relativism and kind of an indifferentism, but really a, a meism, right? Now, when you think about truth right we go back to the movie a few good men you've probably seen it you want answers i think i've been titled them you want answers i want the truth and he says you can't handle the truth right we all know that line it's a famous one but the question is this is an honest statement to consider you know um i think a lot of times we're afraid of researching digging because why well the truth can be hard to bear sometimes reality is too hard to take You know, so the question comes for us, do we honestly seek, pursue, follow the evidence, the science, the truth, wherever it leads? Could we handle the truth if it pointed in a direction that we did not like? I mean, are we afraid? And that's something that is across all boards, faith, science. You know, in terms of faith, just take consider belief in the existence of God. There's a philosopher, Thomas Nagel. He writes, "In speaking of the fear of religion, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I mean, at least he's honest. You know, I'm, now he doesn't really go on to say why he doesn't want the universe to be like that, but we all know it if we're parents and raising kids, right? Right? We all know it in our own self. We don't want accountability. We want to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. You know, I want to say, what is my truth? Now, why, why are we like that? Well, if we're believers, we got a sense of certain doctrines. We know that it's a product of original sin. Now, think of this great quote. Through human, though human reason is, strictly speaking, truly capable by its own natural power and light of attaining to a true and certain knowledge of the one personal God... Yet there are many obstacles which prevent reason from the effective and fruitful use of this inborn faculty. The human mind, in its turn, is hampered in the attaining of such truths, not only by the impact of the senses and the imagination, but also by disordered appetites, which are the consequences of original sin. So it happens, here's the quote, that men in such matters easily persuade themselves that what they would not like to be true is false or at least doubtful. I mean, isn't that a true statement there? So the question is, do we have courage in the pursuit and then try to follow the truth you know, according to what it speaks to us and, and then to follow it accordingly? Now, in life, you think about you know, this both-and versus either-or thinking. One of the hallmarks I love about Catholicism, it really tries to have a both-and approach. It likes all avenues of knowledge, but we can easily fall into these camps of either-or. It's kind of like being a split-minded or to look out at reality with only one eye, so to speak, right? If you watch the scary show, sometimes you close one eye thinking that you won't fully handle reality. Well, that's how it kind of can be in the, in the world too. So think about these examples, sacred and secular, about how we split looking at one way or the other, and look what they've done in society. So Jesus' humanity versus divinity, Scripture versus tradition, magisterium versus conscience, faith versus works, love versus truth. These are big splits in the body of Christ, and people focus on one or the other oftentimes instead of a both-and. And then you think about in the secular realm, right? We've got church versus state, choice versus consequence, rights versus responsibilities, liberty versus law, mercy versus justice. And you can see the societal split, like what do you emphasize, which one? You know, I want choice. Okay, what about the consequence of that choice? Let's not talk about that. So in terms of like faith, revelation versus science, I mean, these terms are gonna overlap. I mean, the talk is faith versus science, but really we're, we're talking about two different ways of kind of knowing, using you know, revelation and faith, science and reason. So when it comes to faith and reason, we got this great quote from Pope John Paul II, right? From his encyclical faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth and god has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth in a word and know himself so that by knowing and loving god men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves so the two wings beautiful image right you, can, you can't fly well with one wing or you can look at it like the two tracks of reason and revelation two orders of knowing that are meant to be complementary, right So as we're going through the journey of life, we're on on the train, we're following the railroad of reason and revelation. Unfortunately, we all know that we all have a doubting Thomas, the train that that can easily go off track in, in its own pursuits. That affects us all, right? And it's from what I said, the effects of original personal sin and the emphasis of one way of knowing to the exclusion of the other. This can cause us to get off track in a host of ways. So now here's a couple little dangers, uh, dangers without a both-and approach of faith and reason. Faith without reason can lead to superstition or viewing faith as primarily just emotions, feelings. God is love, love is feeling, God is feeling. Or it can be an obstinate biblical fundamentalism, like if it's not literally the Bible, faith alone, I'm not going to believe it. Or it, it can even be to the deadly excesses of a fundamentalist radicalism, Terrors towards others in the name of of God. Now, this causes various perceptions toward those who supposedly have faith. There's a hostility towards believers because they think we're in these camps. It can be like, hey, you know, religion is see no evidence, hear no contradictions, speak no facts. Religion, because thinking is hard. (laughs) Science flies you to the moon, religion into skyscrapers. Now, it's actually after... 9 11 where you really saw this hostility come out because they thought look here's these guys in the name of religion wanting to kill infidels and it's like that's not the christian view it's not a faithful view you know it's not even an islamic view right but unfortunately these new atheists came out with these books so like reason without faith can potentially lead to an aggressive secularism that seeks to silence, mock, persecute, rid society of such harmful delusions. Right, and so you see this, they're really writing against a a radical fundamentalism that says that God is a God without reason, he's just will. And if you disagree with him, then you just try and wipe out the infidels or your enemies. But on the other side of the coin, you know, one should have pause when considering how many people in the history of the world, especially last century, have been killed under the banner of so-called reason without faith, atheistic regimes, really when you think about it. So here's a little survey. This is one of the most extensive sociological research projects on youth and religion undertaken. And this is why we really should be concerned. So this was a 16-year study. Many of our young people who have left the church or in active practice of their faith say it was because of science. 70% stated that they believe that the teaching of science and religion ultimately conflict with one another. Nearly all American youth associate science with evidence and proof, but associate religion with blind faith and private subjective opinion, right? This is fact, but Grandma, that's a little fiction. You know, you can pray, but I'll, 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 I'll do the lab work, <laughs> right? Now, what's the perception well, it's kind of like, remember the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? There's the, the great scene at the end where he's got to make this, quote, leap of faith. He's got to pass this <coughs> third test. And the perception is that it's a blind leap of faith, right? You in hear in the background, you know, his dad's saying, you must believe, boy. You must believe. So he has this emotional sense, and he tries to wishfully think, and he takes the step. Now, is that the way we look at it? Well, that's the way some people perceive it. There was this interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was an American astronomer. And and he says this in an interview. He says, there's no evidence for God. And this is why religions are called faiths collectively. Because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence. Now, do you believe that definition? That's a perception, though, right? Now, just a quick footnote. Uh, Even the clip highlights that Indiana Jones had a reason for making the so-called leap of faith, right? He trusted in his father and in the testimony of his father's diary. I thought that was a great image of just kind of like saying our trust in God, he's faithful, and our trust in God's diary, so to speak, his book, the scriptures. They were given there as a record. So faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's really a trusting, reasonable leap into into the light. Now, sometimes, again, with this perception of faith, it's good to make a definition here. Like, you know, what is faith? Is it just kind of this blind, you know, wishful thinking thing? Or here's a good definition from uh, Father John Hardin's Catholic Dictionary. He says, faith is the acceptance of the word of another, trusting that one knows what the other is saying and is honest in telling the truth. The basic motive of all faith is the authority or right to be believed of someone who is speaking. This authority is an adequate knowledge of what he or she is talking about and integrity in not wanting to deceive. It is called divine faith when the one believed is God and human faith when the persons believed are human beings. Now, just look at these scenes here. We have faith all day long in everything we do, right? Look at these acts of faith here, right? Jumping in your father's arms. When you go to the grocery store, are you absolutely sure that Campbell's chicken noodle soup, that it's actually noodle soup inside of it? Why do you trust it? Well, you trust in Campbell's and they're not out to deceive. Getting on a plane, look at all the aspects of faith there. You know, riding on one of those. You ever been in one of those? Now that's scary when you just, think, my whole life's depending on this cable right here. (laughs) You know, trusting your teachers, you know, how do you know they're not out to manipulate, deceive you? Or, you know, when you get your prescription from the medicine. Who knows what's in the chemical ingredients of all the pills you take, you know? So put more simply, faith is reasoned trust. How many of these images involve proof, strict proof? Faith is believing without strict proof, but not without reason. So that's something to kind of ponder in this whole um, journey here. So for those who are skeptical of faith claims and say they rely solely on reason, science as their guide, well then let's consider the following. Number one, is it not an act of faith to trust your reason to reason reasonably? You know, this can be a double dilemma for Darwinists, you know, if basically all we are is just matter plus motions and time. You know, even Darwin said, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Number two, is it not an act of faith to trust that your perception of the world as you see it through your senses rightly corresponds to reality? I mean, if you're you're familiar uh, with the movie The Matrix, do we live in the Matrix? Is it a simulated world of illusion? Or maybe life is just a row, row, row your boat Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Maybe I'm just dreaming right now, you know? So don't you trust your senses that it corresponds rightly to reality and it's not, we're not just in a dream world? And then three, is it not an act of faith to trust that your experience of the real world remains steady, consistent, ordered, not thinking it will radically change from one moment to the next? I mean, why do you believe that? Because, like, you know, how does one know for sure, have absolute certainty that the sun will rise tomorrow, that water will still boil and freeze at a certain temperature, that I existed one minute ago, that I will be the same person tomorrow that I think I am now. <laughs> you know, how do you know for sure scientifically, rationally? It's like, well, you just kind of intuitively trust. Now you think about all of those who, who really worship the science in a sense and the scientific method, they take this all for granted. I've done this experiment, I put the test in the lab, I'm gonna come back to it, nothing's gonna magically change, all will be well, it'll be ordered and consistent. That's something we just kind of assume. So it's good to think in terms of like faith and knowledge and what like most of our knowledge is really faith-based. Faith it's, it's all assumed and trust, you know? And like, think about this, I mean, rare is the statement that is absolutely self-evident. I exist, there are no such things as four-sided triangles. Are one in which we have like mathematical certainty, two plus two equals four. So think about the creed that we say every Sunday, you know, commenting on the first words, I believe Bishop Barron states, I wanna stress as strongly as I possibly can that authentic faith or belief has nothing to do with naive credulity or accepting claims on the basis of no evidence. Faith in a word is never below reason. The church has absolutely no interest in encouraging superstition or intellectual irresponsibility. So he gives the example from John Henry Newman in the statement, Great Britain is an island. He said, one's agreement with this proposition is grounded not in airtight syllogisms or self-evident sense perception, but rather in a whole collection of hunches, intuitions, testimonies, historical records, etc." In point of fact, we assent to religious claims in the same way that we assent to practically any other kind of claim, through a combination of arguments, gut feeling, the testimony of others, intuition and a personal experience, a range of evidences. I always joke with my my uh, wife, you know, in terms of raising kids, you know, she's got an intuition about what the kids are up to or not that I don't have. But that's a certain way of kind of knowing things. That's, that's not just kind of quote, science. Uh, faith and science, though faith is above reason, there can never be really any real discrepancy between faith and reason. Since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God." So like the great uh, saint who synthesized faith and reason, Thomas Aquinas, faith or reason, both, thank you. So. Um, but back to some polling data, this is some interesting things that we also have to consider, especially in light of our own children and whatnot. Uh, in, in one poll, more than two-thirds of self-described atheists and one-third of self-described agnostics affirm that the findings of science make the existence of God less probable. According to the same survey, the most influential scientific idea that has affected people's loss of faith is Darwinism, understood as a random, unguided process of chemical and biological evolution. Like Richard Dawkins says, who's really noted in speaking about this, although atheism might've been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Now, there's been a lot of writing on this and I'm not gonna try and sift through the entire debate, but I do wanna recommend a few resources that have kinda helped me to decipher this along the way. One is by Dr. Jonathan Wells and and he he says a really uh, interesting thing. He says, there never was a war between religion and empirical science But there is a war between religion and materialistic science. Right? That matter is all that matters. And the battleground is evolution. About half of those raised in religion say that they left because they stopped believing. Many of these say they stopped believing because of science in general and evolution in particular. So this is a heated issue, right? Because it has implications which have to do with the big questions. Meaning, life, worldview, origins. Who am I? Where did I come from? Is matter all that matters? So I want to spend just a little time talking about this. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is through a story. A little girl went up to her mother and asked, where do we all come from? The mother paused for a second and answered, well, honey, you know, we believe that God is love. He is the Father Almighty and the creator of all things. His desire to share his love overflowed into all of what we call the universe, preparing for his greatest work of creation, human beings. God made human beings in his own image and likeness, and from those first human beings, we all and you and I came to be. We are all united by his power and love as one big family. Later that night, the girl asked her father the same question. The father answered, in the beginning, there was a bunch of slime. Through time and chance, the stuff in the slime came alive. It began to move and get bigger. Eventually, the stuff turned into animals. One of those animals was a monkey. From a relative of the monkeys, the human race evolved. And here we are today. The girl returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it possible that you told me the human race was created by God and Dad said that we came from a bunch of slime and monkeys? The mother answered, well, dear, it's very simple. Your father told you about his side of the family while I told you about mine. (laughs) But it comes down to this, you know, uh, are we made in the image of the King of Kings or of King Kong? Are we to build the kingdom of God or survive in the planet of apes? Does this ultimately matter whether we live as a monk or a monkey? Now just consider a generation of people who think that all they are is some kind of just a, a, you know, a talking ape. And that really I live by instinct, there's no ultimate God, spirit, who knows, it's all kind of vague questions, it's an offshoot of the brain. What's gonna happen in terms of life, morality, truth, goodness? So we gotta kinda of tr- try and talk about this. So the revolution of evolution, it really had made a big impact in how people think about God, about life, you know about doing science. And usually one of the things i found over the years is that when you're talking to somebody, you gotta say, what do you mean when you say evolution? You know, because it's used, in, it's like one—it's like the word love or faith, or what? What do you mean? You know, change—change change over time. Okay, sure, no problem. You know, the past is different from the present. We get that. That's not things have, evolve in a sense. You know, uh, change with, within a species, right? Um, yeah, great. I look different from my mom and my dad. I mean, thanks be to God, I and mean, it's nice. I don't want to be a clone, but I'm—you know—my genes are a little bit different, right? Or, or change from one species into another. Oh, there's, there's the question, right? Is, is that really true? Do we say that Our Lady maybe somehow shares a link with an orangutan down the road? What, what does this mean? What does science say? You know, and then the, the, the question becomes, were things guided or unguided? Did, did, did God have a creation, a purpose, a meaning in, in mind? You know, or was it just luck of the draw? You know, one of the things we're talking about this whole term from change from one species into another, it's it's a technical term, it's kind of like microevolution versus macroevolution, right? There's quite a difference from change and variation within a species, micro, to an entire jump from one species to another macro. So like, if you know anything about Darwin, he observed, uh, you know, finch beaks, they, they change depending upon certain weather conditions. He also observed breeding experiments. And so a change within a species, he said, well, what breeders can do and what I observe, maybe nature could do in large scale changes over a matter of time plus random chance. So he kind of extrapolated this theory and then presented this. And now we're still in this, in this debate, you know. So macroevolution changed from one species to another, distinct one, from goo to you, from molecules to man, from bacteria to Beethoven. Is it the truth? Well, I recommend Stephen Meyer. He was the guy that gave the, the clip earlier. He's got a, a, a five-part series on science and God. And he answers this question, from bacteria to Beethoven. Really good, because um, I think he's one of the most articulate uh, speakers of science I, I, I've seen. He's written some, some great books calling into question some of these latest theories or whatnot that have been really held for some time. Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, Return of the God Hypothesis, and Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. He's been on a, on a lot of the shows and whatnot. Now, I, I bring him up because, you know, again, he, he speaks to... Um, this real beast of the world's presentation. We know who's in the majority view about what is the interpretation of science. You know, just watch any science show. You know, and oftentimes we might hear things and say, gosh, that doesn't jive with what I think is the truth, but I don't know, I'm not smart, I can't decipher this stuff. You know, but um, one of the articles that are really good is in the center there, Adam Eve, Adam Eve and Evolution by um, Catholic Answers. It's a, it's a little tract. Theistic evolution, I mean, I've, I've, got, I've got the book here. <laughs> this, this is one of those thick tomes that not too many people are going to probably read. But uh, it, it really is one of the best you know, offerings I've seen from a, you know, all the views of science, theology, and philosophy. But you know, like, uh, like I was saying, this, these notes here say the macroevolutionary debate is still providing as much heat as light as it presents a very differing interpretation of the science, leading to very different perspectives on worldview. There is still a wide range of viewpoints, of both secular and Catholic viewpoints, such as the two books mentioned above. Like the, the, the one there, Faith, Science, and, and Religion, that's a current Catholic textbook. And when you go through it, it's I mean, it's a beautifully illustrated textbook, but it pretty much adopts our Darwinian view of evolution, but it kind of, quote, baptizes it, and says that this is how God did it. And is trying to explain it, and then somehow try and reconcile it with a Catholic worldview. Other people say that's absolutely false, you know, but how do we, how do we sift it out? Well, I don't know if, if we have right now, but Pope Pius XII, he uh, really, the, the most authoritative encyclical from the church is one called Humane Generis. He said, somehow, however, rashly transgressed this liberty of discussion When they act as if the origin of the human body from pre-existing and living matter were already completely certain and proved by the facts as if there were nothing in the sources of divine revelation which demands the greatest moderation and caution in this question so again we're trying to say you know let's just be prudent and not overstep the bounds let's try and work through this but some people want to say nope science settled you don't like it hit the road jack but it's like there is massive divergence of, of, of views. I mean, if, if you get on the internet and start to look at, at, at all the different viewpoints, I mean, it's quite amazing. Now, there's a, there's a great video called Follow the Science where Dr. Brian Keating says he offers a cautionary warning when you hear the phrase, follow the science, or by extension, the settled science, or scientific consensus. You know, he says, think about all the things that are believed in the scientific world, like eugenics, I mean, even when Einstein wrote his theory of relativity, there was like a hundred guys who came out and said, this is all a bunch of garbage, you know? So, um, you know, again, we know what's in the modern consensus view in a lot of what the world thinks. I mean, just think about this debate we've had, you know, with the whole COVID thing, right? And there was the, the famous little clip there where Dr. Fauci said, you know, an attack on me is an attack on science. I represent the science. You're like, wow, I mean, that's a pretty big deal considering there's a massive range of interpretations. And so think about all what we went through, right? What is the science? Who do you follow? Who do you trust? Which doctor? Which news source? You know, and it's wild that depending upon whatever news source you follow, they might have a differing interpretation of, of what the so-called science was, you know? Lockdowns, masking, get the jab. You know, um, if you weren't, vaccinated, were you a threat to humanity, et cetera. Think about the other debates going around about, you know, climate change and going green and all, all that stuff. How do you really know? My, my question's always been, why the push to censor, punish, fine, fire, lock down opposing, alternative views? You know, what does it say about a view if you say, you know what, I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm gonna try and shut you down and censor you. I mean, especially like if you look in the center there, um, I, I thought about all this in, in light of that movie that came out years ago called Expelled where Ben Stein, you know, talked about this whole design, intelligent design movement and whatnot. And all these folks who were getting fired just because they had kind of had an alternative worldview. I mean, it's like, is that how we want to live in a kind of a so-called free society, democratic republic? You know, it's interesting that from, from that video then to, um, to today, there's this whole group that says descent from Darwin, it's about a, a thousand scientists who are very scholarly all across the country. And all they say is, is this, you know, we're skeptical of the claims of the, for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be in, encouraged. I think that's, that's great, you know. The problem is for us, like, you know, we're trying to discern an educated, smart, authority person, A, saying that X is a science fact, with an educated, smart, authority person B saying X is science fiction. So I'm like, hey, you know, like, you've heard of the term, the proof is in the pudding, right? I can taste it, I can discern for myself, but what about the pudding that you can't taste that's based upon history or somehow science, right? Now, years ago, I watched this video. It was about, it was called The Lost Years, and it was about a guy trying to find out when Jesus went to Egypt and the Holy Family, like where they went to along the way. And so there's a few sites that claim that the Holy Family stayed here. They built a church around it. They venerate that spot. And the guy asked, he goes, well, how do you know that X marks the spot? I mean, who, this is going back a long time. You know, it's just kind of tradition. And the priest had told the guy, he said, he said this. He goes, the proof is in the persecution. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, here's sites that Christians reverence from the beginning, and they were willing to get punished, persecuted, and even die to be able to reverence at this spot. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting, because that's, that's what I heard about the Holy Land, too. You know, how you know that Bethlehem is the right spot, Church of Holy Sepulchre, that's the place where Jesus rose from the dead. Early Christians went there. But then, you know, some of the uh, Romans tried to thwart them and, you know, bury them, you know, and, and, and build new, you know, new whatever on, on these sites, but yet the Christians persevered. So I, I thought it was interesting for our, our, our discussion here, the, the early Christians who reverenced these sacred sites were willing to suffer persecution for their beliefs. This is not making an absolute proof as such, but it does offer some wisdom when one thinks how this can be implied in so many situations past and present. The proof of the truth is often in the persecution, in those willing to risk their status, situation, livelihood, to make a stand for something. Is this not also an aspect of faith, which is courage? I mean, think about it in your own life, right? We got to stand up to our kids, (laughs) you know, because we're willing to take some heat because we believe in a certain way. You know, think about people in your family life. You stand up for certain things morally that's in your faith. And even now with this whole debate about science and what we went through with COVID, who was willing to stand up? You know, and it's like, I'm not saying that's the catch, you know, end-all, be-all about the truth of it, but it's like, you know, in terms of faith, morals, education, science, politics, I think it's like, hmm, time time has tested that those who are willing to risk usually have some of the the truth on the side, and those who try to silence others typically are going the other way. Now, another principle I, I like is that we've heard it said judge a tree by its fruits. Well, this applies to ideas as well. Judge an idea by its fruits. Or, you know, discern the spiritual roots by looking at, at, its, at, at its fruits. You know, one of the reasons I'm personally hesitant about kind of uh, this whole adoption of this kind of Darwinian viewpoint is in, in, in like Catholic theology, you're trying to reconcile the two. I'm, I'm, I say proceed with caution. You know, the church gives us a liberty here to kind of, you know, understand these things. But if ideas have consequences, I think about what Darwinian theory being adopted by people like Marx, Hitler, Margaret Sanger, it's done at the society at large. I'm like, can we just kind of reserve to say, let's not jump into this right away with some of these viewpoints. And let's try and look at a balanced presentation. That, that's all that I think is fitting. Why, why censor? Why shut out? Why intimidate? Why mock? Let's just try and make it balanced. Now, one of the things... Um, that I found fascinating is that like I say, the, the church hasn't taken any real official definitive stand on biological ev- evolution. But like in 2006, that's when Pope Benedict wrote what was called a spiritual testament. We didn't get to read it until after he passed away, that's when he, they uh, released it. But right before he wrote this, he just had a conference hosted uh, at Castel Gandolfo. Uh, it was a conference on creation and evolution. And it's interesting that when, you, when, when he wrote this spiritual testament, He gave gratitude to God, his parents, his family, you know, his friends. And then he makes this kind of interesting statement. He says, "'Stand firm in the faith. Do not be confused. Often it seems as if science on the one hand, the natural sciences on the other, historical research has irrefutable insights to offer that are contrary to the Catholic faith. I've witnessed from times long past the changes in natural science and have seen how apparent certainties against the faith vanished, proving themselves not to be science but philosophical interpretations.' only apparently belonging to science. Just as moreover, it is in dialogue with the natural sciences that faith has learned to understand the limits of the scope of its affirmations and thus its own specificity." So he really encourages this dialogue, this, this openness, and then just be prudent when you see something that seems to be contrary a, against the faith. At the end of the day, he's really concerned theologically and philosophy about what some of the impact of these interpretations of the science does on the human person. Like Even when he was installed, he said, we are not some casual, and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is a result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. You know, and that's what we want to communicate to everyone is too. So, the, the, the church has great respect for all scientific inquiry. She offers commentary and caution at various times, however, when alleged findings of science overstep their proper domains and are strived to present an interpretation or philosophy of science that seeks to exclude the creator from his creation." So if you go back to that video clip, you know, it's wonderful to ponder this. God's authored two books, the Book of Nature, the Book of Scripture. These are complementary to one another. This is God's Word, this is God's world. And praise be to God, in in terms of what we've grown in our scientific understanding of, of the world, we are really in an exciting time of studying the universe, what they call cosmology. So Stephen Meyer wrote this book, Return of the God hypothesis, I mean, there was one book I would recommend, it was, it's, it's this one. He says, he highlights three scientific discoveries from the natural sciences. One, the material universe had a beginning. Two, the material universe has, finally, has been finely tuned for life from the beginning. And three, large discontinuous increases in functional, functionally specified information have entered the biosphere since the beginning. So, this basically, this, it's, it's had a beginning, it's been fine-tuned, there's been an explosion of life since then. These facts don't prove God's existence, but it does provide strong inference as to how the sciences point to theistic implications. Just to take the first one, you know, this um, creation out of nothing. You know, something that that science has really kind of shown, like, oh yeah, that's that's actually true. So this guy, uh, Robert Jastrow, he's a noted agnostic astronomer, physicist, and cosmologist. In this book called God and the Astronomers, he discussed the obvious uh, theistic implications of the Big Bang Theory. Though he acknowledged that these implications made, made him personally uncomfortable, he explained that the theory with its implication of a beginning seems to portray the origin of the universe in terms that closely match what a biblically informed theologian would expect. He says this is the most powerful evidence for the existence of God to come, to come out of science. You know? uh, it's kind of funny, in a, in a memorable conclusion to his book, he said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. You know, so that's one of the beauties about it. Again, Vatican one to find that, you know, infallibly that the, the world was made out of nothing. And yet there was always this viewpoint in the scientific world that maybe it was always there. This kind of steady state theory or, or whatnot. You know, so... Um, but now it's kind of been kind of con- con- confirmed as, as such. Now this is interesting. One of the greatest insights I've learned from Pope Benedict is, is this. And, and, and I hope it, it, it does good for you too. You know, co- commenting on John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Now the word there, logos, the Greek word, That's very significant. The Greek word logos has a layer of meanings or definitions. Word, mind, thought, speech, intellect, order, reason. Think biology, physiology, psychology. Logos indicates a rational explanation in contrast to a mythological one. So Pope Benedict comments, the world was given its origin in God's reason. This is the first real enlightenment of world history. It is Christ who is the eternal reason. Logos, word, the ground of our being. So in the beginning was the word, and that word was was reason. It was made through the world. So th- the world was made in intelligibility, in speech, in order. So we think about God as love, but we also got to see God as logos. God has revealed himself as love, but he's also revealed himself as love, as creative reason, through whom all things were made, right? He is the image of the invisible God. Through him all things are made. That's what we state every Sunday at the, at the Creed. One person said it's really fascinating when we think about Jesus' his own vocation in life. He became a carpenter or a craftsman because he liked to build things. <laughs> so the lo- the Logos from eternity was the order through which God made all things. And that Logos became man and dwelt among us. You know, and it's really fascinating when you, when you ponder just creation in general. Space, time, matter, you know, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, primary colors of light, oxygen, or am sorry, water, H2O. These things, there's a there's a fascinating line in the Catechism that says that the Trinity is a mystery of faith in the strict sense. To be sure, however, God has left traces of His Trinitarian being in His work of creation. Kind of a three-in-one. I find that just fascinating we look at these kind of big things about life. I mean, this is not saying it's the, you know, this is just my own personal view. Like, isn't it fascinating that the summit of creation is the human person? The one become two, the two become one, the, the, the one that become becomes three-in-one. You know, that's an echo. But that there's also these other things in the lower levels of life that are kind of this three-in-one, too. But what I, what I love about it is that, is that God creates this order universe, and the studying the laws of nature are really studying the lawgiver, too, who made them, you know? We're learning about the designer from the design. Now, um, Kepler, he speaks about this book of nature. You know, it's a beautiful image there about God creating with this compass, right? And he says, he, he, he says this, the, the, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been, been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Now, I don't speak that language too well. I never had in school, but I don't know how you do. Uh, you know, in fact, I, had a, I was at one time studying to become a chiropractor, and we had to take organic chemistry, which basically is just massive formulas. And I can remember this one lady who had flunked the class the, the year before, and she was taking it, and then one time the teacher had all these formulas on the board, and this lady just held out her arms and just started crying, <laughs> you know, to try and understand these formulas. They're simple, but yet complex. But this is how God writes. This is how God, it's kind of like God's favorite language, is mathematics, you know, and it's really stunning to ponder this in terms of all the recent studies about the balance of initial conditions in the Big Bang in order for the universe to permit the origin and sustainability of intelligent life on earth. The universe appears, in fact, to have been incredibly fine-tuned from the moment of its inception for the production of intelligent life on earth. So the fine-tuning argument is one of the arguments that when you ever watch a debate with an, uh, a believer, with an atheist, the atheist has said, like, yeah, that's, that's probably the best argument that the, the the believer has, but really it should get in us a uh, sense of wonder and, and all. You, some of you may have heard of Father Jacques Philippe. Um, he, was a, he, he was a scientist by training, but since he entered his religious community, he didn't have a chance to keep up with the latest developments of cosmology. He was at this airport, he said, he picked up this book called Latest News on the Cosmos, and, and he, he he read it he goes, because I have to say, this book did me more good than ten, ten spiritual books. He even said like I, how proud he was of God for just this wonder and all of the beauty of of the cosmos, you know, so it really comes down to is it a matter plus chance plus time or is this in fact intelligently designed? If we were walking and we saw a smartphone, none of us would conclude that this just happened with wind erosion and, and, and chance. We would know that it points back to someone who, who designed it, you know, so when you, when, when you think about that and, and, and what a smartphone is, then you get into the complexity of, of a cell. I mean, I, I got a show and tell here. So I... <laughs> I haven't read this book, but God bless all the people that study the uh, molecular bi- biology of the cell. But this is just a cell, a textbook. On, on trying to really understand the design of, of a cell. Now, yeah, it's really amazing upon ponder so much. We have no clue at the microscopic level what is going on to make us even function and move and, and live. And in fact, this Dr. Miller, when I was talking to him, he said that he was like a, an atheist, nonbeliever in, in college uh, and so forth. And he said that, he goes, a little science can bring people away from God, but a lot of science will bring them right back, especially when you see these wonders and all I think about every one of our estimated 75 trillion cells are these many machines working it's really incomprehensible so in in terms of the evidence from the physical sciences you know there's a lot of people finally starting to kind of tune into this data like how do you explain this you know we only we only when we see genius we point to a genius and so naturally for most people um, you know, we echo what has been revealed in the scriptures from the greatness and beauty of the created things comes the corresponding perception of their creator, you know, from creation and creator, art to artist. Um, you know, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it, it says this great line, ever since the creation of the world has invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made even more so now than ever. As a result, they have no excuse, these people, for although they knew God, they did not accord him glory or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning, minds were darkness, and they became fools. And yet, you know, there's a lot of folks who just say, I don't buy it. One guy is Richard Dawkins. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, he wrote, uh, biology is the study of complicated things to give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He then proceeds to argue that they were not not design. You know, thus, no design, no designer. So the, the design argument has been one of the classic proofs for the existence of, of, of God in a sense, but Darkin's comments try to kind of pull out the wrong part of that saying, you know, what you're seeing is just an illusion. You know, that, that goes against this universal uh, instinct of design that we all have. This is a great book I'd recommend called uh, undeniable. This universal d- design intuition. You know, really, I think we're, we're in the cultural fog of what's called scientism, which basically states it's nonsense to believe in something that is nonsensed. So scientism posits that the only true valid form of knowledge is what can be empirically tested, right? That makes sense in terms of a materialistic worldview. If matters all that matters, then the only thing that works is science. Ironically, the very statement science is the only avenue to truth is not scientific. It's, it's a It's a belief. It's faith, it's a philosophical statement. You can ask an advocate of scientism, are you saying that we should believe only what we can be proved scientifically? If the person says yes, then you can ask, has it been proved scientifically, that we should only believe what can be proved scientifically? What scientific experiment proved that? What can science say about all the questions of why? Can science give its opinion on questions of ought or should, good or evil, right or wrong, murder, rape, torture, sex trafficking of children? What does science say about that? Can you determine from science what are ethical rights and and wrongs? From a materialistic standpoint, really, if you're all just a bag of atoms, there's no real than free will, there's no then moral accountability, and there's no ultimate standard. So it's like we gotta look back and say there's a bigger picture here than just this one avenue for truth. So, scientism is like using a metal detector to find a child's plastic toy lost at the beach. You aren't gonna find it via a metal detector. Science is a form of knowledge to be sure, but it's not the only tool in the toolbox. Think of all the ways we come to know things, right? Conversation, trust, history, authority, you know, testimony, logic. The problem, again, too, is who's interpretation of the science? Science has kind of become like an idol. Who do you trust? What do the scientists say? The problem, just like with most data, is interpretation. Interpreting scientific evidence is itself more than science. The same evidence in the hands of different scientists can point in radically different directions. Now, think of all the scientific controversies of our age they result from scientists looking at the same evidence and drawing massively different conclusions this is where the temptation of prejudice philosophical worldview ideology and dare we say grant money can come into play i mean wouldn't it be really nice to say all right you're saying this theory is accurate are you getting paid to say that who does this influence would you lose your job if you didn't say that you know um it's always interesting to kind of ponder that. If, if I go against an instinct that seems to be contrary to the narrative, what's it going to cost me? Like I said, proof is in the persecution. So today we're kind of all jaded now because we feel like this. At least some of us might. You know, what about follow the money? They say it's much wiser than advice and follow the science. Now, what is really interesting, too, from, a, from really a Catholic-Christian moral standpoint, who was really striving to follow the science? Think of the modern debates about life, family, when does life begin, what's the child? You know, think about that. When human life begins, it's not a theory, it's a scientific fact. Think about the whole transgender thing. Is it a boy or a girl? Well, we can't say, We'll let the, kinder- <laughs> the kindergarten teacher decide. Matt Walsh was on Dr. Phil, what is a woman? Talking about what, you know, can we say that a man is a man and a woman is, is a woman? Is it, is it objective or is it just subjective? And even Lila Rose, who's big in the pro-life work, she was on Dr. Phil there too, and they were talking about when does life begin. And then Dr. Phil threw out the line, well, the scientific consensus says that fertilization is not the moment when life begins. And she's like, no, that's not the truth. And then it's like, who do you believe then? Here's the Dr. Phil. And he's got a fact on scientific consensus. So it's, it's very difficult, but you're like, wow, you know. So uh, real quick, one before we kind of wind up here, on faith and science, um, I'd really recommend that you watch a program on, on, called The Search. It's really wonderful. But um, again, science means knowledge from the Latin sion to know. Knowledge seeks truth. 400 years before Copernicus, Columbus, the Catholic Church gave rise to the institution that became the primary source of knowledge in our modern world, the university. Some 81 universities have been established by the time of the Reformation in the 1500s. The historian said um, the church was the only institution in Europe that showed consistent interest in the preservation and cultivation of knowledge. And according to this historian, he said, if the medieval church had intended to discourage or suppress science, it certainly made a colossal mistake in tolerating, or to say nothing of supporting, the university. So, bottom line, it's a myth that the church is opposed to science. You hear this thing about the Galileo affair. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Go ahead and read all about that. You know, it's a, it's, it's one of those big myths that have been, you know, thrown out there to say the church is opposed to it. And that's one little hiccup on the radar of this huge patronage that the church has towards science because we love knowledge, we love the truth. Unfortunately, as Mark Twain said. Like can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its shoes on. But one of the things about the video is really cool. Many people don't know this, but the Vatican itself has an observatory on Mount Graham in Tucson, Arizona, because there's too much light pollution in, in, in Rome. So, so, I mean, St. Peter's Basilica uh, has also four ob- uh, observatory locations. There are 35 locations of the moon named after Jesuits due to discoveries there, you know. So like Bishop Barron uh, and his site, they really try to highlight some of the, the great, you know, scientists who were people of faith back in the day. You know, in, in fact, Father Georges Lamachry, right, he was the, the one who really proposed the Big Bang Theory, you know, which Einstein rejected at first, calling it the greatest blunder of, of his life. But for us, you know, creation points to the, the creator and the, the guy who hosts that, Chris Stefanik. He said that, uh, I think we're the first era in history to have so many people say, God, if you're really there, why don't you reveal yourself to us? He said, I think God is looking down from heaven and saying, do you not notice everything? You know, all signs point. You know, again, that is uh, a view that might come natural to some, but very difficult for others. But what I really like is what the catechism says about this. (laughs) You know, there's all of us, there's a little doubting Thomas in each of us. He said, but the catechism says, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with reason. God has willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the spirit and miracles show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. We also have things that are kind of like beyond science so to speak to show that you know we're not as as great as what we think there was a guy um, we had him to speak at our parish one time um michael o- O'Neill, and uh, he's got a website called miraclehunter.com great site follow the science of the supernatural at a class his teacher condoleez rice he's challenged the students to become an expert in something he was in that class he decided to become an expert on on miracles I've given a whole talk on some of the things he said and miracles in general, following the memory, M-I-R-A-C-L-E-S, but the one at the center is really key. The longest wor- word in history is your genetic code, you know, and uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to ponder, just not only you as a person, creation as a whole, but all these other signs and wonders. If I had to kind of speak to a skeptic, I would say, here's, here's a... Here's five things to start off with. Some of the most studied relics in history, the Shroud of Turin, Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Stigmata of Padre Pio, the Miracles of Lords, they got 10,000 healings on the book. The, uh, that video in the center, Science Test Faith, that, that basically show, um, highlights this one phenomena of the Eucharist that, churned, that changed from living bread into heart muscle tissue, and this happened in the current Pope's diocese when he was in Buenos Aires, and at the time, Cardinal Bergoglio gave permission for full investigation of this, and they've shown this phenomena that you have in one second, bread, in the other second, heart muscle tissue. And it's like, and this is just one of hundreds that we have, very fascinating. Of course, it's first Saturday, couldn't neglect to mention Fatima, right? The miracle of the sun there, 70,000 witnesses. You know, that's a testimony of a vision. I wonder what science has to say about the dancing sun. I just thought that was kind of interesting too. What would that be like? But then, but then kind of as a follow-up in, in modern times, you know, the alleged apparitions at, at Menjigoria. you know, that's one of the most scientifically studied uh, studied apparitions, <coughs> you know, with all the data that we have now to do these tests during a so-called vision. It's really a fascinating thing. I would encourage everybody to really um, read about this more, read about those studies. And then what I find really fascinating that, I don't know why people don't mention this more, is, you know, for every saint that's canonized, they're required to have miracles to kind of testify about their holiness. You know, the requirement of scientifically scrutinized and verified healings, miracles and the causes of canonization are crucial because they are a divine confirmation of the holiness of the person invoked. It is a confirmation on earth to witness to a reality as it is in heaven. That's, that's a really fascinating thing. We're, we're asking science to kind of verify you know, something uh, in, in, on, on earth as it is in, in, in heaven. So i got about two minutes here just to conclude. Is the church anti-science? Absolutely not. You know, Cheston gave this great quote, Rightly or wrongly, those who believe in miracles believe them on the basis of evidence. Rightly or wrongly, those who disbelieve in them refuse to believe on the basis of faith. So I think we've got some tools in the toolbox to do, again, apologetics, logos, <coughs> always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you a reason uh, for your hope. And we have that, both in faith and in science. This clip from a big um, mentor, Fulton Sheen, we've we named our firstborn son after him, I think he kind of summarizes it well for us here. He says, the church asks her children to think hard and think clean. Then she asks them to do two things with their thoughts. First, she asked them to externalize them in the concrete world of economics, government, commerce, and education, and the sciences, and by this externalization of beautiful, clean thoughts to produce a beautiful and clean civilization. Then he says, the church asks her children not only to externalize their thoughts and thus produce culture, but also to internalize their thoughts and thus produce spirituality. No thought is born without silence and contemplation. It is in the stillness and quiet of one's own intellectual pastures, wherein man meditates on the purpose of life and its goal that real and true character is developed. So I think it's a good summary of kind of of faith and science. So on the relationship of faith, revelation, science, reason, let's follow the witness and example of Pope Benedict and keep both eyes open. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.